All right. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, it's good to be with you again on this last Sunday of August 2020. Can you believe it? Uh, next week, uh, moving into the month of September and all that that will bring. It should be good. I'm glad we're gathered together again, and I'm glad you've chosen to be with us in this particular fashion. Would you please uh, open your Bibles, whether it be a paper Bible or you're going to scroll over there in your on your iPad or whatever it might be, but would you please turn to the book of Amos, where we will continue our verse-by-verse -verse study uh, through God's minor prophets, uh, the book of Amos. Now, while you're doing that, I'll, I'll remind you, when we were last together, we learned that the book of Amos was written sometime around the year 760 BC. We learned that it was uh, named after this fella, Amos, who was a uh, shepherd, really a sheep raiser, uh, in the southern town or city there, or village, I guess is better description, uh, called Tekoa, and that God sent him all the way up to the north. He sent him to the town of Bethel, this large, bustling city, which had become the center of the, the kingdom's spiritual idolatry. And that's who God was going to send our friend Amos to. Uh, last week I pointed out to you, and my last reminder, I promise, but last week I pointed out to you that uh, from about 800 B.C. to maybe about 740 or so B.C., that Israel was in this time of economic boom and prosperity. Things were going well. The nation was wealthier than it had ever been before, but that sadly they were also in a period of uh, spiritual and moral bust, if you will. Economic boom, spiritual and moral bust. They were not doing very well spiritually. They were running after their other gods, um, cruelty and oppression uh, and injustice and all those things uh, had begun to make their way into the nation and God was not pleased. God had established Israel uh, that and the Jewish people that they would be, to use a New Testament phrase, a city upon a hill that all of the world might be able to see what God can do through a people as that people obey that God and unfortunately, Israel had become just the opposite. The book of Amos is a series of sermons. Uh, chapters 1 and 2 are, if you will, the first of those sermons. Uh, chapter 3 will be a second. Chapter 4 will be a third and so on. And it, it just sort of continues in that way. And we, when we were last together, we kind of stopped right in the middle of that first sermon of Amos. And so we're going to pick up today in verse 4 of chapter 2. So you can turn to chapter 2, verse 4, uh, and as you do, let me pray for our time together. Father, we thank you for uh, the ability to see and to understand what it is you have for us through your word. We're certainly grateful for your Holy Spirit, who is our teacher, who ministers to our heart in the deepest places and um, confirms uh, the word of God uh, within our hearts. And so we do pray that you would be with us this morning Lord, you'd minister to us in the deep places. You'd bless us as a result of our time here today. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I said, we're going to pick up in verse 4. And you'll notice in verse 4 a familiar phrase, particularly if you were with us last week. And that's the phrase for three transgressions and for four. I'll remind you last week that we saw that that same phrase was used against the six surrounding nations, those nations that were scattered around the nation of Israel in the, the southern kingdom of Judah, the northern kingdom uh, that became known as Israel, and that the phrase for three transgressions and for four was a sort of a poetic way of saying that the particular group that Amos was addressing 
had accumulated their sin upon sin upon sin upon sin. And as a result of their unwillingness to repent in light of God's patience, in light of God's long-suffering, that God was going to bring a judgment against that people. And so Amos began in chapter 1 by addressing the people of Damascus. We saw that in verse 3 of chapter 1. And he addresses them for three transgressions and for four. And then he explains how God would bring judgment against them. We saw in verse 6 how he addressed the region of Gaza or the city of Gaza. How in verse 9, the people of Tyre. How in verse 11, the people of Edom. And then in verse 13, the Ammonites. And then last week, as we were bringing our, our time to a close, we saw the last of those surrounding nations that uh, Amos addressed were the Moabites, the people of the kingdom of Moab, just to the east of the promised land where Israel had been established and set up. And we saw that in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Now you can imagine, here is this sheep raiser, this uh, hick fella, I use that term, I think it's appropriate, I hope it is, but this fella that comes from the south, makes his way to the city of Bethel, and he says, I have a message for you people here from God. And as he begins to preach to these people, he begins to call out those that were from Damascus and those that were from Gaza and those that were from Tyre and the Ammonites and the Moabites and the Edomites. And he calls out all these surrounding nations. You have to imagine that the people of Israel were saying, you know, I like this guy. I like this preacher. I like the way he speaks and what he has to say. I also have to imagine, as here in chapter 2, when Amos begins to turn his attention on the fellow Jewish people of the southern kingdom of Judah, I have to imagine that was beginning to hit a little close to home for the Israelites. I imagine some guys sitting in their chair, maybe loosening their neckties a little bit, concerned that, hey man, this guy is getting a little too close to home here. And of course, we, as we pointed out last week, Amos's message is primarily going to be to and about the Israelites. But first he's going to speak to those of the area of Judah. And that's going to begin for us in verse 4. And so starting there, let me read. It says, Now thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Judah and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because they have rejected the law of the Lord, and they have not kept his statutes. But their lies have led them astray, those after which their fathers walk. And so I will send a fire upon Judah, and it will devour the strongholds of Jerusalem, their capital. Now, both Judah and Israel were a special, chosen, privileged people uh, on the face of the earth. And they began to see themselves as a privileged people, a unique people called out by God unto himself. And they saw how that made them different and distinct from the surrounding nations that were around them. And so they were right in that regard. But what they failed to realize, however, was that their privilege as God's chosen people, that that created for them a greater responsibility on their part as it pertained to obedience. And that's a principle of Scripture that we see throughout the pages of Scripture, and that is this, that the greater the light, the greater the responsibility. So take notice of the condemnation of Judah that Amos pronounces. He says that they rejected the law of the Lord and that they had not kept his statutes. 
Now, that's a much higher level of accountability than God required of any of the six Gentile nations that we looked at last week that were mentioned in chapter 1 in the beginning of chapter 2. And again, it's because the greater the light, the greater the responsibility. To say it in an additional way or a different way, this is how Jesus referenced it. He said, to whom much is given, much is required. And from whom to him uh, they entrusted much, they will demand all the more. And God blessed his people, the Jewish people, whether they be from the kingdom of Judah or the kingdom of the north that they called Israel, God blessed his people with his law and with his commandments, and thus he expected them to honor his law and to obey those commandments. But instead, as Amos points out in verse 4, the people rejected those commandments of the Lord. Interesting that the word that is used there, we have it's the word rejected. It's actually a little bit stronger than that. It could actually mean that they despised the commandments of the Lord. And so once again, we see a people that have linked themselves to the Lord who nevertheless are despising the things of the Lord, the word of God. So it's not that they couldn't hear the word of God, but it's that they wouldn't hear the word of God. And why wouldn't they hear it? The reason why they wouldn't hear it, it's because the word of God spoke into certain areas of their lives that they did not want God to speak into. That is, what I mean by that is that it challenged them regarding certain areas of sin. And the people of Judah, and later we'll see the people of Israel, did not want God to challenge them about certain areas of sin. They were all for those parts of the Bible that were positive and encouraging, as we hear so often in the Christian world today, but they wanted to have nothing to do with those parts that called out sin in their own lives. Those portions they chose to ignore. Those portions they rejected. Those portions, as Amos points out, they despised. And it is because they did that they were, notice how it goes on to say in verse 4, they were led astray by their lies. And so the first step of their decline. And, and I like to look at Judah and I like to look at Israel from the perspective of those of us that are churchgoers, those of us that, you know, I'm a Christian, I'm a follower of God. I like to kind of put myself in their particular place and watch their decline lest it become my decline. And so their decline, the first step in their decline is that they rejected the law of the Lord. They ignored certain portions of the scripture. When God's Holy Spirit spoke into a certain area of their lives, they rejected that. That must mean something else, or that's not for me, or, or even, God, you have no right to speak into this area of my life. So the first area of their decline is that they rejected the law of the Lord. Now, that was followed up by their not keeping God's commands or their statutes. That is, doing what they wanted to do. And then finally, what does it result in? Well, it results in their being led astray by their lies, which in the context of the book of Amos is another way of saying that they fell into the sin of idolatry. All of humanity has been throughout history and will be born with a need to know God. And some have described this as sort of a God-sized vacuum or a God-sized hole. And so when a person rejects the word of God, as the people of Judah did, as Amos points out, it will not be long before they reject the God of the word. And whenever a person rejects the God of the word, 
soon other gods, what the Bible calls idols, soon idols will need to be introduced into their life to fill that God-shaped hole. The word of God, it brings truth. And so when we despise and reject the word of God, we naturally go after and we naturally embrace lies that are going to lead us astray. And it's why we place so much emphasis here at Calvary on keeping ourselves in the book as a congregation and as individuals, because it's as we stray from this book and we begin to speak from our own philosophy or our own feelings or just kind of go and do our own thing, it's as we stray from this book that we begin to put ourselves at risk of being led astray to lies. And the people of Judah, they failed to keep themselves in this book. And so just like the surrounding nations, the Lord speaks a word of rebuke against them. And he announces that there's going to be a coming judgment against them. Look at it in verse 5. He says, I will send a fire upon Judah, and it will devour the strongholds of Jerusalem, the nation or the kingdom of Judah. In verse 6, Amos continues. This time he's going to address Israel. He says, for three transgressions and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted, a man and his father go into the same girl so that my holy name is profaned. They lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge and in the house of their God, they drink the wine of those who have been fine. Amos now addresses the specific people to whom he was sent uh, to prophesy. And again, that's the northern kingdom. You recall back in chapter 1, verse 1, it introduces us to Amos, kind of where he came from. And then it says, this is the vision that he saw concerning Israel. And so Amos was a prophet, though he was from the south, that was sent to the northern kingdom of what we call Israel. And here now, finally, as we make our way to chapter 2, verse 6, he addresses Israel by name. He, He looks them in the eyes and says, and now for you guys. And he lists in verses 6 through 8 a number of different sins. And they serve, if you will, as sort of this composite picture, this collage, if you will, that is formed of the multiple and the overlapping corruption that has made its way into the kingdom. And just like the nations that are before them, they, for three transgressions and for four, they have accumulated their sin upon their sin, upon their sin, and upon their sin. And what is their sin? Well, we see in verse uh, 6 here, their first sin is the sin of economic oppression. They sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Their second sin, the denial of justice to the oppressed. Verse 7 says, they trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth, and they turn aside the way of the afflicted. Next, we see their sin of sexual morality and idolatry, in which it speaks of a man and his father going into the same girl, a temple prostitute, so that God's holy name is profaned. And then finally, we see that they are enriching themselves on the fines that were imposed upon the innocent. And it says at the conclusion of our little passage, it says, in the house of their God, they drink the wine of those who have been fined. Again, it's a picture of a most corrupt and a most immoral society. 
I appreciate it. as I was studying this, I was reading one of the commentators I enjoyed, James Montgomery Boyce. And he summarized these verses well. Here's what he said. He said, Amos describes the practice of sexual immorality in a temple dedicated to the God of Israel that lived in comfort with objects extorted from the poor. Moreover, these sinners are so pleased with themselves that they even toast their success with wine that was dishonestly acquired through their corrupt legal system. I think that explains well the way in which they were accumulating sin upon sin upon sin upon sin. God's desire for the nation of Israel was that it would be a nation that would be separate and distinct and marked by righteousness and justice, that it would be a nation that would stand out amongst its neighbors and the entire world, again, like a city that was upon a hill. And sadly, the nation had descended to the point that they were no different from those that surrounded them. And in light of the revelation that had been given to them, that they were even far worse than the nations that were around them. And so how is it? How is that? How is it that the chosen people of God, who experienced the special measure of his love and devotion, how could it be that they could have strayed so far? Well, Amos addresses that. Starting in verse 9, he says this. He says, It was I who destroyed the Amorite before them, whose height was like the height of the cedars, and who was as strong as the oaks. I destroyed his fruit above his root and his roots beneath. Also, verse 10, it was I who brought you up out of the land of Egypt and led you 40 years in the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorite. Verse 11, and I raised up some of your sons for prophets and some of your young men for Nazarites. Is it not indeed so, O people of Israel, declares the Lord? Verse 12, notice he says, but you, you made the Nazarites to drink wine and you commanded the prophets saying you shall not prophesy. So notice what the Lord does here. He recollects his goodness, the ways in which he had been good to the nation of Israel, and then the way in which Israel despised that goodness. And so in verses 9 to 11, he reminds them first how he destroyed the Ammonites, those that previously inhabited that area that became known as the Promised Land, how he destroyed those inhabitants so that the people might possess that land and thrive in that land. That despite their great height, despite their great strength, that God opened up the land that the Israelites might go into that land. He get, then goes on and he reminds them how he brought them up out of Egypt and how he led them for 40 years through the wilderness and preserved them for 40 years in the wilderness. And then finally, in verse 11, he reminds them of how he raised up from among their sons Nazarites and prophets. You know what a prophet is. A Nazarite was one that was uh, singularly devoted to the Lord. They almost, I guess we might compare it to like a monk, for instance. They were set apart specifically unto the Lord for the purpose of guiding and directing and leading the people. God raised these men up for those purposes, and sadly, what was their response? Their response was to reject the Lord and to reject these things. So notice this again quickly. God did all these things on behalf of the people. He destroyed, he brought up, he led, he raised up. And what is their response? Look at verse 12. It begins with the words, he says, but you. God had done all these things for them so that they could shine brightly for him. 
and their response was to reject his ways and to entice other people to do so as well. Notice he says, you made the Nazarites to drink wine and you commanded the prophets not to prophesy. God reminds them the many ways that he extended to him the great privilege to work together with him to accomplish his purposes and sadly their response is to despise and to reject each of these privileges. And so the question, it's never formally asked, but in all of this, the Lord is saying to them, hey, considering all that I have done, how is it that you can reject and despise me in these ways? I mean, think about it. It doesn't make sense. And yet it was the way in which Israel was responding to God for the last 200 years of its history. And so what do we read in verse 13? It continues. It says, behold, I'll press you down in your place as a cart full of sheaves presses down. Flight shall perish from the swift, and the strong shall not retain his strength, nor shall the mighty save his life. He who handles the bow shall not stand. He who is swift of foot shall not save himself, nor shall he who rides the horse save his life. And he who is stout of heart among the mighty will flee away naked in that day, declares the Lord. And so because of their unwillingness, to respond to God's repeated overtures uh, to obey, the Lord says he'll begin to apply uh, upon them his heavy hand, his heavy hand of judgment. And he says that. He says, I'll press you down in your place as a cart full of sheaves presses down. And then he goes on and he describes the way in which the many things that they might place their trust in are all going to fail them in that particular day. And so he references, notice some of the references that are there. He references their swiftness, their strength, their might. He references their skill when he says those who, uh, he who handles the bow, uh, the bow and arrow, for instance, there. And then he, he mentions sort of their courage, the stout one that will be able to stand, won't be able to stand, but instead will flee away naked. All these things that they could have trusted in in those days, how each one of those things are going to come up short in those days. God was going to bring judgment. And one way that God was going to bring judgment upon the nation of Israel is that they were going to find themselves unable to succeed in all of those ways in which they previously thought themselves strong. All those ways that they previously could depend upon themselves, now suddenly there, there would be no answers there. They wouldn't bring the relief that they were hoping it would bring. And the reason is because without the blessing of God upon their lives, the swift weren't going to be swift enough. And the skilled weren't going to be skilled enough. And the mighty certainly weren't going to be mighty enough. The children of Israel had piled sin upon sin upon sin upon sin, and they did so by refusing to respond to God's previous attempts to bring them to the place of repentance. And because they did not respond, God would now crush them and bring about their defeat. And he would do so, as we're going to see, at the hands of the Assyrians. Just like those neighboring nations, which we looked at last week, the cup of Israel's unrighteousness was full, and thus God's judgment would now come upon them. Now, as we go to chapter 3, I said earlier as we began today that chapter 1 and 2 serve as sort of the first sermon that 
Amos delivered. Chapter 3 is now the second of those sermons. And you'll notice how it begins. It begins with the phrase, hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you. And that's how he's going to begin chapter 4. It's how he's going to begin chapter 5. It's the start of this new sermon. And I, I find it interesting. He, he begins, his first words are, hear this word that the Lord has against you. And, and I'm reminded, many preachers in our day, they like to kind of start with a joke and get everybody feeling good and, you know, let down their uh, defenses or whatever. But not Amos. Amos goes right at the jugular of his listeners. And he said, this is what God has against you. Uh, and... Uh, he says, much like he did in that first sermon, he said, look, this is what God has done for you. He's brought you up out of the land of Egypt. We see that there in verse 1. He goes on in verse 2 and he says, and of all the people of the earth, you alone has the Lord especially known. He, he lays out, this is what God has done for you. Uh, and yet this is the way you respond. You respond by rebelling against him. And so again, he says, let me read it to you. He says, hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the whole family that I brought up out of the land of Egypt. He says, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all of your iniquities. Now, the latter half of verse 2, if you haven't read this before, it, it might be somewhat surprising to you. I think it's somewhat surprising to many. I think because many expect that verse 2, immediately following the phrase of how you are God's special people, they expect verse 2 to conclude by saying that because Israel has such a unique relationship with God and because they alone are known by God of all the families of the earth, what they expect it to say is then God's going to overlook your sin and God's going to ignore your repeated rebellions. But notice here, we read just the opposite. Because it says, you only have I known of all the families of the earth, therefore I will punish you for all of your iniquities. Israel sadly came to the false deduction, which I think too often is made by those that name the name of God. And that is this, that if we are the privileged people of God, God is only ever going to show us mercy, even in light of our repeated rebellions. But the, the reality is, as I said earlier today, that with great privilege comes great responsibility. And Israel was shirking their responsibility. And so their standing as a specially chosen nation of God, it didn't make them less responsible to God. It actually made them more responsible before the Lord. God chose Israel and he gave them a special calling. That's a tremendous blessing. But sadly, rather than embracing that calling, rather than walking in that blessing, Israel was turning its back on the Lord and walking away from the Lord. Remember it said earlier they were going astray. And so none of this should catch us off guard or it should have caught these Israelites off guard because it's exactly what God said through Moses in the book of Deuteronomy. He said, if you guys go astray, you're going to experience the consequences of going astray. This is what we read in Deuteronomy 8. It says, If you ever forget the Lord your God and follow other gods and worship and bow down to them, I testify against you today that you will surely be destroyed. Like the nations the Lord destroyed before you, so you will be destroyed for not obeying the Lord your God. And that's what we're seeing here in the book of Amos. First, those other nations are listed 
for their various sins against uh, humanity even and God's judgment on them. And now as the nations before you were destroyed, so too will Israel be destroyed. Amos continues in verse 3. And he does an interesting thing. He, he asks a series of questions, six of them actually. And the answer to each one of those questions is an obvious no. Now, it may not be obvious necessarily to you, but it would be obvious to the people that he was written to. It, it pertained to their culture and the context of their lives and so on. And so he says in verse 3, do two walk together unless they have agreed to meet? The answer would be no. Does a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? No. Does a young lion cry out from his den if he has taken nothing, no animal to bring back there to eat? No. Does a bird fall in, the, in a snare on the earth when there is no trap for it? Again, the answer is no. The fifth question, does a snare spring up from the ground, a trap spring up from the ground when it has taken nothing? No. And is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? And again, that may not be one we're familiar with, but the answer to the question would have been no. And so Amos gives these six rapid questions, each with an obvious answer. In the, our context, America here, we might say something like, well, is the Pope Catholic? You know, the answer is obvious. Everyone knows what the answer to that question would be. Now, notice what Amos does. He follows up those obvious questions with an equally, or what should be, an equally obvious question to the people of the northern kingdom. And he says, does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? And again, that's what Amos has been saying is going to happen to Bethel and to the kingdom of Israel. Disaster was about to come. And so he asked the question, does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? And just like the answer to the sixth preceding questions was no in all six cases, the answer to this question will be no as well. Does disaster come upon a city unless the Lord has done it? No, it does not. And what the Lord is doing here is he wants to make it, he wants to make sure that everybody understands in Israel that when judgment comes against the city of Israel, that everyone would know that it was the Lord that had done it. So it wasn't an accident. It wasn't fade. It wasn't kismet. It wasn't bad luck. It wasn't any of those things. It was the hand of the Lord against the northern kingdom because of their sin. He wants everyone to be aware of that and to know that for certain. He goes on, he makes his point, he says, For the Lord God does nothing without revealing his secret to his servants, the prophets. The lion has roared, who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken, who can but prophesy? And over and over again in the history of the Jewish people, God had revealed through his prophets that a day of judgment was coming unless the people repented. And that coming judgment shouldn't catch any of them by surprise. I'll pose Amos's words in a question similar to the ones that we just considered, and that is this. Does God bring judgment without, refer without first revealing it to his prophets that they might warn? And as with all those other questions that we have recorded for us, the answer again would be no. And so for years and years and years, hundreds of years, God had been revealing this secret to his prophets so that Israel would have every opportunity to repent. Should they then be surprised when judgment comes upon them? Once more, the answer is no. 
It's a resounding no. Verse 9 says, Proclaim to the strongholds in Ashdod and to the strongholds in the land of Egypt and say, Assemble yourselves on the mountain of Samaria and see the great tumults within her and the oppressed in her midst. They do not know how to do right, declares the Lord, those who store up violence and robbery in their strongholds. Now Ashdod, mentioned in verse 9, was a, a leading city of the Philistines. I mentioned this last week. And the area of the Philistines was south of Israel. It's in today what we call uh, the Gaza Strip region. So Ashdod was one of those leading cities. And of course, we're all familiar with the name Egypt as a country of the world today that is named Egypt. And it was, it was the once great empire. It was still a very significant empire at the time of this writing that was in northern Africa, again, to the south of Israel and Judah. And the Lord says, summon Ashdod, summon Egypt, bring them to the mountains of Samaria. I want to show them something. Now, the mountains of Samaria, Samaria was the political capital of the northern kingdom. And so we've mentioned cities like Bethel and Dan and Gilgal. Those were sort of uh, spiritual capitals of the northern kingdom. They were hubs of uh, the idol worship and where they, they set up those golden calves and things like that. But Samaria, kind of in the middle there of the northern kingdom, that was the political capital uh, of the region there. And so what the Lord says here, he says, call the people of Ashdod, call the people of Egypt, have them come to the political capital of the northern kingdom. He says, because I want to show them something. And what he wants to show them, he gathers these heathen nations around that lived around Israel to come and take notice of the wickedness of Israel. And the, the idea is, what, what he's getting at is that even these heathen nations will be able to testify against Israel and their wickedness. They'll be able to observe it and see it and testify against them. And so the very nations that had once been the witnesses of God's power against themselves would now become the witnesses of God's righteous judgment, even against his own chosen people. Going on further in verse 11, it says, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, an adversary shall surround the land, and bring down your defenses from you, and your stronghold shall be plundered. Thus says the Lord, as the shepherd rescues from the mouth of the lion two legs or a piece of an ear, so shall the people of Israel who dwell in Samaria be rescued with the corner of a couch and a part of a bed. Now we know exactly who the adversary that is mentioned in verse 11 is, again, it says an adversary shall surround the land. We know historically, and it'll go on to say, that that's the Assyrian Empire. And we know that the Assyrian Empire, that they established sort of a, a siege around the northern kingdom. They cut off the northern kingdom from the surrounding nations. We know when they did that. It was it was roughly around the year 735, 730 or so, just 15 or 20 years after our friend Amos is prophesying, the Assyrian Empire begins to make its way. They eventually gained control of it, and finally they moved in and completely conquered the northern kingdom, which it goes on to say in Amos 3.11, where it says, they'll bring down your defenses from you and your strongholds will be plundered. And we know historically when that happened. The Assyrians moved in uh, and destroyed the northern kingdom, took the people away captive. 
that was 722 BC. And, and that was maybe 35 years after our friend Amos is prophesying to this people. The Assyrians would come in, complete fulfillment of what Amos delivered to them. And the, and the Israelites' destruction at the hands of the Assyrians, it would be so complete. Look how it's described. It's compared to the shepherd that goes and rescues, or really the animal's already dead, so recovers, really. The shepherd that goes and recovers from the mouth of a lion just pieces of the devoured shower, uh, sheep, a couple of legs, a uh, piece of ear, that kind of a thing. That's what the destruction of Israel is compared to. It goes on and it says uh, that those who dwell in Samaria will be rescued or recovered with the corner of a couch and a part of a bed. That's all that would remain of this once prosperous and economically booming nation. All that would remain is the corner of a couch and a piece of a bed. Within 40 years of Amos' prophecy, Israel's great economic boom turned to a great economic bust. And the Assyrians destroyed the people of Israel, again, as I said, exactly as Amos prophesied. Well, the chapter it continues and it concludes, verse 13, it says, Now hear and testify against the house of Jacob, declares the Lord God, the God of hosts, that on the day that I punish Israel for his transgressions, I will punish the altars of Bethel, and the horns of the altar will be cut off and fall to the ground. And I'll strike the winter house along with his summer house, and the houses of ivory will perish, and the great houses will come to an end, declares the Lord. Now the altars of Bethel, that was the place that the first king of the northern kingdom had set up the golden calf for the people to come to worship. Again, remember he said, go down to Jerusalem no longer to worship. Here's where you're going to worship. And he, he set up the altars. Uh, he set up the golden calf. All that was done in this little town here of Bethel. And Amos tells us that the altar is going to be thoroughly destroyed. He, he points that out there. He says he's going to punish the altars and the horns of the altars will be cut off and they will fall to the ground. In the book of uh, Hosea, the, one of the minor prophets we studied a little while ago, about a year ago, we learned that the golden calf itself was taken from Bethel and it was brought up to the area of Assyria and to their capital as tribute to their great king. It, it was their way of communicating, we have, our God is greater than your God. We've defeated your God. We can even take him from your temple and bring him as a trophy uh, in the palace of our king. And so they carry that uh, golden calf away there. When the Assyrian Empire invaded Israel, not only would Israel, the people of Israel, be judged, but as a testimony to the uselessness of their false religions, their golden calf, their altars, all of these things, all of those things would be destroyed as well. And so it was, be, it was because of Israel's transgressions because of their idolatry, that the Lord was going to visit upon them his judgment, and he was going to do so at the very sort of hub of that idolatry, which was the altars of Bethel. Notice the second place that God's going to pour out his judgment. He says it's going to be upon, this is verse 15, it's going to be upon their great houses. And so God's judgment was not just going to stop at the places of their idol worship, but it was also going to extend to their great houses. He says to their winter houses and to their summer houses. 
that they had built, and again, remember the context, that they had built through their oppression and their robbery of the weak and the disenfranchised. And so again, in verse 15, he says that, I'm going to strike your winter house, I'm going to strike your summer house, I'm going to strike your houses of ivory, I'm going to strike all your great houses, and they're going to come to an end. Now, let me just make this point. Their great houses in and of itself was not the problem. Even the fact that they had two houses, a summer house and a winter house, was not their problem. Their most pressing problem was the way in which they acquired those grand residencies. And of course, what I mean by that is, that is through corruption and greed and oppression and injustice. And as we've been looking in our study of this book, the Lord took notice of those sins and because the people would not repent of those sins, he now pours out his judgment upon them for those sins. Again, he says their great houses will come to an end. Now, I think I see here a great lesson in these final three or four verses of chapter three. And the lesson is this, that when God's judgment comes, there is no place that a person can hide. Look back with me again at verse 12, where it mentioned that the people of Israel dwelt in Samaria. Samaria, again, being the political capital of the northern kingdom. One thing you may not be aware of with the city of Samaria, the city of Samaria was set up, it was built upon a hill with steep, with steep cliffs, and then they put a thick encircling wall around it. And so without a doubt, the people that were in Samaria itself felt most safe and most secure from all harm that would come against them. Who's going to be able to climb these steep uh, cliffs? And who's going to be able to, you know, make their way over the big wall that we have built? And they would think nobody. And so one of the places where they might run for security from God's judgment is to their fortress and the place of their uh, military and political headquarters. They thought they would be safe. The Lord says they will not. The next place the Lord turns his attention to, as we saw, was found in verse 14 when he says, I'll punish their altars of Bethel uh, and the horns of their altars will be cut off. Well, the next place that uh, people might run would be to their temples, to their religion, their man-made religion, those, things where they, those places where they worship. The tradition was that on the edges of their, their altars, uh, they would have these horns that could come off. And a person could run to that temple, grab a hold of those horns. And it's not unlike people today, maybe, uh, you know, someone's trying to chase them, whatever it may be, they might run into a church. And, you know, no one's going to go into the church and commit those horrible crimes or whatever of shooting that person or arresting that. That'll look awful. And so they don't do it. And so that's what they were thinking. They could run to their temples, they could run to these altars, grab onto the horns of them, and they would be safe. And so assuming that the fortress of Samaria was overrun, the next place they might go to would be their temples, their altars, their sanctuaries. And the Lord says, those places aren't going to save you either. Finally, as the enemy presses in, where might they run? They might finally run to the safety of their homes. They would hide under their ivory beds, and even those safe places will fail. Because what's the point? That, that there is no place that a person can hide from the Lord's coming judgment. Again, to ask the question of verse 7, does disaster come upon a city unless the Lord has done it? In the day of God's judgment, political might 
will never save. Military might will never save. Man-made religion will not be able to save. And our wealth and our luxury and all of those things we put our hope and our trust in will never be able to save us from the judgment of God if he is pouring it out on us. God and God alone can bring deliverance. And so when God extends his hand and he prompts us to return, return is what we have to do. And repeatedly, as I've been saying, the Lord sent his prophets to Israel that they would repent. And sadly, repeatedly, Israel rejected God's invitation because they wanted to continue in their sin. As we saw, the only thing that remained, therefore, was for them to be judged. And so with that, let me, as I'm beginning to close, let me just ask this question. What, is, what are these passages, these couple of chapters, what do they mean for us? Well, certainly uh, we're, we're learning the historical record of these things that have happened, and that's always important. But what do they mean for us? How can we make some applications for our lives? Well, I think first and foremost, it means this. If you have not yet begun a relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ, that's the place where you need to begin. Because as we mention every time that we're together, or nearly every time we're together, the Bible is clear that all of us are sinners and that our sin separates us from a holy God. And so I'll ask you, what is your plan for that separation? The Bible has a plan. The Bible says God sent forth his Son into the world to save sinners. And so if you've not yet begun a relationship with God, through his son, Jesus Christ, that's the place for you to begin. Acknowledge your need for a savior and then receive the free gift of salvation that is made available to every one of us through the work of his son on the cross. If you'd like to do that, reach out to us. We'd love to talk with you about how you can do that in your life. But let me also address those that are watching that have already done that, that have cried out to God uh, through his son, Jesus Christ, that his mercy would be extended in our lives. What about those of us that would classify ourselves, call ourselves followers of Christ? Do these words have anything to say for us? And I would say, I believe they do. And so let me just say this, this question. Let me ask it of you as Amos asked questions of his listeners. Where are you right now in your relationship with the Lord? Are you further along in your relationship right now than you were perhaps a year ago? Or have you perhaps been drifting a little bit back? Have you been responding to God's leading in your life, particularly as he puts his hand, his thumb, on an area of sin that is in our lives, an attitude of our heart, the way that we maybe respond to people, the things we get ourselves involved in and we find ourselves doing? As God, by his Holy Spirit, if you're a child of God, you have the Holy Spirit in your heart. And the Holy Spirit will begin to point out certain areas that are not pleasing and honoring to the Lord, even as he did through the prophets of old to the people of Israel. Are you responding when God puts his finger on a particular area? Are you taking heed and responding with repentance? Or, as the Israelites did, are you despising his word? Are you rejecting how the Holy Spirit is ministering to you? The next question I would ask is, how would you say you are handling the great responsibility that is ours as believers based on the great privilege that is ours as believers? We are a special people in relationship with God because of the work of his son. 
That means we have a great responsibility. That's a great privilege and a great responsibility. How are you handling that responsibility? Sometimes we read text like this, and it's our tendency to read the passage and think of others that really need to read a passage like this. Let's take some time instead today, let's take some time this week instead to read these passages and consider these passages with ourselves in mind. As this week goes by and as we're reminded of some of the things that we considered here this morning, let's not be reminded of those things with other people in mind, but let's instead kind of search out these things and ask the Lord what he has in mind for each one of us. And of course, when he speaks, let's commit ourselves to listen and to respond. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, that's, uh, that's kind of an easy thing to say and to commit to um, here this Sunday morning. But it becomes a little more challenging um, on Monday and on Tuesday when you put an area on our hearts and you say, you know, this is what I'm talking about. And it, it sort of presses down on an area that has become dear to us and that we don't want to forsake and we don't want to let go. But Lord, we're reminded today that your ways are best, that you're good and that you desire good for each one of us. And so, Father, we want that truth to rise above any desire that we might have for um, sin and for lies in our lives. Because we want to walk in your ways. We want to honor you. We want to treat the great privilege of being in relationship with the creator and sustainer God of the universe. We want to treat it with the great responsibility that it is. But we want our lives to represent you so well that others might be drawn to you. And we want to be in such close, unhindered relationship with you, Lord, that you're as near to us as you were to your disciples you walked with 2,000 years ago. And so, Father, bless your word. Use it for good in our lives, we ask in Jesus' name.